that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program. This is CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. On the program, I unpack the mayor's task force on housing affordability and their, uh, unpacking their interim report with former COPE counselor Ellen Woodworth. In the second part of the program, uh, lessons from the front line of the Quebec student mobilization from Quebec student leaders themselves, Martin Desjardins and Yannick Gregoire. Um, that and so much more on the program. This is The City. Stay with us. And uh, this past Monday, um, City of Vancouver and the Mayor's Task Force on Housing Affordability released their interim report. And uh, I'm, uh, we're going to shortly go to a, uh, an interview um, with Ellen Woodsworth, former city councillor for the Coalition of Progressive Electors, uh, COPE. Um, but before that, I just want to uh, briefly go through a few items um, from this release, um, this interim report release. And uh, I'm going to read uh, from, just very briefly from the report. Uh, this is um, from Mayor Gregor Robertson and Olga Illich. Um, she is the chair of uh, this task force. On behalf of the Mayor's Task Force on Housing Affordability, it is with pleasure that we share this report on our work to date. We began to explore housing affordability together back in January 2012 and have been working hard since then to look at how we might improve affordability in Vancouver. The task force focused on affordability solutions for moderate income households earning between $21,500 and a combined $86,500, but acknowledged that housing challenges faced by low-income households earning less than $21,500 continue to be a critical public policy concern for all levels of government. However, it noted that the city, along with other nonprofit and government partners, is already strongly committed to action in this area through recommendations adopted by council and its housing and homelessness strategy. And so these households at the low, lowest end of the income range are not the main focus of the support. And again, that was um, the message in the beginning of the report from uh, Mayor Gregor Robertson of Vision Vancouver and Olga Illich, um, and she is the chair of that task force. And uh, 
within that report, they made a number of key recommendations. Um, number one, increased supply and diversity of affordable housing. Uh, density increases in appropriate locations. Uh, density increases in appropriate locations create important opportunities to enhance housing affordability and diversity. The city should accelerate planning programs that increase density in large developments and transit-oriented locations, and those that increase housing diversity in residential neighborhoods. Improving housing affordability and diversity should be a primary focus of these planning initiatives. And secondly, enhance the city's and the community's capacity to deliver affordable rental and social housing. Create a city-owned entity to deliver affordable rental and social housing by using city lands. Mobilize the community to support affordable housing through community land trusts and alternative financing models. And thirdly, protect existing social and affordable rental housing and explore opportunities to renew and expand the stock. And within that, protect existing nonprofit social cooperative housing, which may be under the threat under threat, and continue to protect the affordable market rental stock use, the community planning process, um, to focus on strategies to repair, renew, and expand the stock neighborhood by neighborhood. And lastly, number four, streamline and create more certainty and clarity in the regulatory process and improve public engagement. Uh, enhance creativity, efficiency, and transparency of approval processes and clarify regulations in order to reduce development costs and enhance affordability. So these were the main uh, four main key recommendations out of this interim report. And um, we're going to go to my conversation with um, former counselor, uh, COPE counselor Ellen Woodsworth, and uh, uh, her thoughts on this, um, this report. Ellen, what are your initial thoughts on uh, the interim report? Well, COPE has been um, calling for an independent housing affair authority for years, as they are, have in Toronto. So we think this is a very good idea. Um, I'm very concerned that what we're going to get is not real affordability and that the report is addressing people whose incomes are over 21,000. We know that over 52% of people in Vancouver are renters and that we're losing hundreds of units of housing to rent evictions and uh, buildings are being torn down and we're not seeing the replacement units being real affordable units. Yeah, one of my initial uh, thoughts after reviewing it is that nowhere in it does it uh, define what affordability is. And I would say, first and foremost, um, the city needs to really have a robust and um, uh, adequate um, and real definition of what affordability is. Absolutely. And the Carnegie Action Project and the Downtown Eastside Neighborhood Council have been very clear that you know, uh, one third of your income, if your income is over twenty two thousand, is very different than if you're, say, a youth or a senior or an immigrant, low income person, where one third of your rent, you know, if it's, uh, you know, up to twelve hundred for one bedroom or even a thousand for one bedroom, eight hundred is is just not accessible for you. And the Salvation Army has said that one-third of people living in their uh, shelters are working, but they're not able to afford a housing. So we're, we're losing and forcing out 
into the streets and out of our city the very people that we need to make this city survive into the future. So I want to, if you have a moment, I want to go through um, the the key recommendations um, coming out of this. And the first one is uh, recommendation number one, to increase supply and diversity of affordable housing. So, and within this, um, the sub-points are uh, recommendations, increase housing choice in low-density residential areas, increase supply in locations with good transit links, and lastly, a creative inclusionary housing policy. Um, do you have any comments specifically on, on these areas? Well, it's consistent with the regional growth strategy to create density around uh, transit nodes. So you could look, take a look at what was supported at Canby and uh, Marine Drive. Um, you know, it's, it's just not real affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's housing that's, you know, that people who've got a good income are going to be able to afford. And uh, concern about, you know, inclusionary zoning, what, what we were pushing for with inclusionary zoning is to ensure a minimum of, you know, 20% social housing requirements for large developments. Mm-hmm. And this could undermine that, uh, that policy. And we're very concerned also that, that uh, we protect existing stock in these, these areas. And that's not clear that this will be protected. To, to quote from uh, this this item, uh, the task force recognizes that developing new complete communities on large sites provide perhaps the best opportunity to increase the supply of affordable housing. The task force discussed a number of opportunities to enable different kinds of housing in large developments through partnerships between the private sector, nonprofit sector, and the city. Do you have concerns that language of uh, P3s, private uh, uh, public-private partnerships? Well, that's a real possibility. It's also, you know, within the framework that trickle-down uh, right, exactly. capitalism works, that, yeah. that if you, you build more and you increase the density, that you create more affordability, and that's not been proven. Right. And uh, you're, you know, um, I live in Grandview Woodlands. I live in a rural housing complex of six units that has been full of people who've uh, occupied it since 1920s and it's created re- uh, good housing for a long time for a lot of people at affordable rates and then when it got flipped in December all of a sudden the eviction notices started to come and one by one uh, the units have been being f- fixed up and then the rents have quadrupled tripled you know just gone from one unit went from 825 a month to 3000 a month so mm-hmm. You know, we we need to protect existing stock as well as creating more affordable stock. We we the city needs to be looking at ways to encourage the development of uh, housing um, by leasing city land that provides that real affordability and takes away this drive that that the developers have that they will they need to make a, a minimum of seventeen percent profit on anything they develop. One, uh, and this is uh, continuing on uh, the first recommendation, but um, they are proposing to continue to build on the the work of um, the secure market rental housing policy. Um, So this is uh, um, sort of in line somewhat with with STIR, the short-term incentives for rental housing. 
um, but incentivizing the construction and incentivizing developers. So again, the, the language of, of density bonuses and DCL waivers. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, you know, and... It's very interesting, yeah. you know, this, this, this STIR project has created some rental housing. That's very true. But at the loss of the community amenity contributions, such as, you know, uh, uh, again, I'd say it's particularly obvious in, say, the, the West End or, or Cam- uh, on Canby Street. Every community center is full to the maximum, needs renewing. Um, you know, we need more child care. We need more parks. The park ratio is not being kept up. And um, we, we really need to make sure that the developers address the needs that they're creating by these, this increased density. In, in the Olympic Village area, they market their projects using public developments. They market them showing the beautiful community center at Falls Creek. They market them using the child care centers. You know, they advertise these as great community amenities around their developments, but they're not putting the money into them. On on uh, within this category was um, consider rental housing and housing development on uh, land zoned uh, currently industrial, and to me that that is a very I think somewhat a, somewhat a problem because it, it's very short term and not thinking into larger issues of peak oil and um, relocalization and you know I think in coming decades. Yes, we need affordable housing, but eating up all of our inner city industrial land where we may need to retool um, and build and fabricate locally or manufacture locally. It's certainly a balance, but I would say, you know, you can build homes, but then if there's no jobs, (laughs) do you accomplish anything really? I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that. That kind of surprised me. I mean, it, it. you know, we are very short of industrial land. We have almost none left, and, and Great Northern Way's one chunk that we do have left. So I, I think we need to be very careful, uh, you know, whether we move into this. Well, yeah. Uh, and I, don't, I don't think, you know, I'm very, I was very surprised to see that. It's, it's also inconsistent with Metro Vancouver's. I was just not too long ago at a presentation with a uh, uh, planner for Metro, and um, she very clearly, you know, said we really need municipalities to realize that we can't lose any more industrial land um, yeah. because it is important. And once you lose it, you can't. Once you build condos on it, you can't take it back. Yeah. Um, so it's. I mean, I, I think this somewhat inconsistent with a regional growth strategy, but uh, nonetheless within the interim report. So. Yeah. I wanted to move on to some um, to a num- number of other things that are. Um, I, I guess I was a bit surprised. The city-owned housing authority, um, which you touched on, but also uh, talking about uh, the possibility of establishing community land trusts. And I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I think it's very important to keep public land in people's public hands. I mean, we've seen what happened with Little Mountain, where there were 224. Y- units of perfectly good family affordable housing and the province forced the city to give them a a demolition permit. We lost 700 people had to be reallocated to other housing. We lost in a wonderful community and we haven't seen anything on that site for over three years. Um, So I think we need to be looking at how we can lease public land 
to developers who are committed to building uh, non-profit housing and uh, affordable housing. I wanted to touch on, um, lastly, and I'll let you go, within uh, one of the recommendations, um, this one is streamline and create more certainty and clarity in the regulatory process and improve a public engagement process or public engagement processes. Um, And within it, uh, the city should examine the broader use of density bonusing to allow the prescribed increases in density within an existing zoning bylaw in exchange for meeting specified conditions. Um, And the example is providing affordable housing or other public benefits. And then uh, within that, it also goes on to say that lower development costs only only translate into lower prices and rents when there is sufficient supply and competition in the marketplace, um, and that reducing development costs will not necessarily translate directly into lower house prices and rents um, without specific mechanisms to ensure those savings are passed on to purchasers and renters. Um, but in that, it you know it's sort of embedded within this larger idea that you know the, the supply side argument that if you create more supply, it's going to r- reduce the costs, and then you find a line in there that says without the proper mechanisms it's not actually going to happen yeah. this I, I think for for me this comes down to an an issue of equity and it really is whether the city is willing to um force developers to um take some concessions and um they're still going to make money but it's the extent to which they're going to make money on on housing which should be seen as a basic human right yeah, well, Canada signed the UN Charter, guaranteeing <laughs> housing as a right, not a commodity. Yeah. And I think the city should be working with nonprofit housing developers yeah. who really do want to uh, develop housing that's affordable. And also, the, you know, people have approached the city saying they want to cooperatize their building. Mm-hmm. And we should be facilitating uh, initiatives, whether it's equity co-ops or other possibilities, to, mm-hmm. which are, are really possible, I think. And we could be using our city land, leasing our city land um, to people who want to come up with some creative solutions like that that create the affordability. And absolutely, I think the developers, you know, need to be sent a real clear signal that what we need is for them to be at the partner at the table rather than just... Um, another corporation seeing a way to make maximize their profits at the expense of the city as a city that needs its young people, it needs its young people, immigrants, it's, it needs its low-income people to live in the city. And, uh, you know, in a, as you said earlier, we need to, you know, have the people live, work, and play um, in their own neighborhoods. And, and as the prices soar for any type of housing, people are being driven out of Vancouver and then they drive in to work here, which is very bad. Were you surprised that rent control uh, is not within this interim report at all, or the possibility of a form of rent control? Well, I think rent control, uh, the province putting more money into housing, the federal government putting more money into housing, are all things that the city needs needs to take a lead on. Protecting Mm -hmm. real... uh, strong uh, laws to protect renters, mm-hmm. uh, to start to get a uh, uh, hold on and stop the rent evictions that are happening. There's all kinds of things that that need to be uh, within the mandate of real actions the city and the mayor take to stand up for the citizens and the 52% of people who are renters in the city and others who want to come into the city but can't come and live and work in the city. 
Do you think it's um, appropriate for uh, city council and for the mayor to take take this struggle and this fight um, to higher levels of government? Uh, to me, I, 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 I think there's a certain level of pragmatism, and I understand that, but not not really voicing these uh, issues in a really uh, effective and strong way and really putting applying that pressure. And I guess I just don't, I don't see it from this council. I, it's absolutely imperative that there be leadership from the cities across Canada working together. And it has come up again and again and again at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities meetings that, that, affordable housing is a priority. The FCM is continually speaking out on this issue. So uh, the Mayor Robertson, as the chair of the big city mayor's caucus, should be taking the lead and speaking out very strongly. And this is a crisis across the country, and it's, it, it's something that's building. And as we know, there are hundreds more people homeless than there were even in the last homeless count. It's, it has to be addressed very strongly and clearly by uh, you know this council before I let you go any uh, last thoughts Ellen well I'll just reiterate again that you know COPE has been very clear on these issues an independent housing authority enforcing a minimum of 20% of real affordable housing prote- protecting existing housing stock tr- the stronger you know uh, laws to support tenants and you know there's a provincial election coming we need to be really challenging the parties that are running for re-election in the provincial election what is their um, commitment to real affordable housing and protecting uh, tenants Uh, are you willing to look into your crystal ball and uh, <laughs> are there any changes or additions that you expect to see in the final um, uh, report from the task force? Well, I think that everybody should get to the, uh, the, 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 the mayor and councillors and let them know what they think about the report and let them know what's happening to their housing situation. Inundate the city hall with what the real needs are for real affordability in the city and yes then I think some things can be changed in this report and get some teeth put into it Okay Ellen, thank you so much for your time, I really appreciate it Thank you Andy, Okay, take care Bye bye
You can ride with us, man, but you're riding in the back because I ain't got a shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Rio Theatre is your independent East Vancouver theatre, playing first-run feature films, independent film screenings, as well as live events. Every Friday night, there are featured midnight cult classics on the big screen, and no one can beat the Rio for their cheap date Tuesdays. There's no better place to be than the Rio for classic movies like The Big Lebowski, The Room, Carrie, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Dazed and Confused, and Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. Special events at the Rio this month include June 15th, Bring your dancing shoes for Good with Grapes with Young Pacific and Darival. Tickets are $10. Doors open at 10 p.m. Starting June 21st to July 1st, come watch the Euro 2012 finals starting at 11 a.m. And on the last Wednesday of the month, come get your nerd on with the hit show Dungeons & Dragons. Join Vancouver's best comedians as they quest for glory and honor in this live improvised performance. For more information on all this and more, check out theriotheater.ca. You're all shook up, aren't you, baby? Despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started. And this is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. And you're listening on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, streaming online also at www.cjsf.ca. Thanks so much for tuning in. And uh, we're now turning to the second half of the program. Um, and uh, just before the break, you heard Synth Cake with Sail Away off their recent release. And um, on June 19th, uh, this uh, past week, um, uh, the BC Federation of Labor hosted a panel discussion, uh, Quebec Student Strikes, Lessons from the Frontline, and um, two members from uh, student, uh, the student movement in uh, Quebec uh, were there to present and discuss what's going on um, from their perspective. And I think in, in, in talking about this, it's important, important to remember that um, the student movement is... Um, an urban movement, and we must see it um, in that way. Um, not to say that's exclusively how it is, but um, much of the momentum, um, as we know, has been in Montreal, has been centered around major cities. Um, and, you know, thinking about Occupy and thinking about past um, movements, these are largely urban struggles. And um, to quote David Harvey, um, a radical um, urban geographer, the revolution must be urban or nothing at all. And I think, I think it's really important to think about these um, struggles as inherently urban and how they shape and how they transform urban space and how we're contesting um, neoliberalism or we're contesting um, you know, the, the, the tax policy that is basically transferring wealth to, to wealthy people and higher income groups. Um, and then saying, turning around and saying, oh, we can't fund education. We can't do this. We can't do that. So... But in, in this context, these are urban struggles, and, and this is something that I think we need to be, be conscious of and um, think about in that way. So uh, without any uh, further ado, um, 
These are uh, two student leaders from uh, the University Student Federation of Quebec, um, and they represent a substantial number of students. Um, and uh, we're going to first hear from them. Uh, this is Yannick and um, uh, Martine talking about uh, what they're fighting for. So before, before going to what we are fi- how we fought it, uh, we're going to go with what we are fighting. is a tuition fee hike. Uh, first of all, we already said it, there was a tuition fee of $500 from the 2007 to 2012. Uh, and for the, the, it was in a larger, bro- broader plan to invest in universities in which with that tuition fee uh, the, the students were providing 46% of uh, the amount of money that would be uh, put more in the universities. And there was no change to student financial aid. Um, what, what in fact is that it was the major, the major part of the, uh, of the investment uh, was from the government, of course, but it's actually it's 15 to 17 percent of the uh, of the financement of the university from students' pocket, and with that plan, it was 46 that was going from the students' pocket. So they were drastically changing the paradigm about uh, the financement of university. So in that avenue, they went to the next. Uh, increase, which was at the beginning $16.25 dollar more than $17.78. Uh, and uh, for that, is, it would cost to the students $48.75 bucks more for a program of three years. Of course, it's an increase of 82%. And that doesn't include all the other fees that still go up, such as uh, inscription, such as uh, uh, grade, grade all of the, uh, and also doesn't include uh, books and manuals uh, and all other fees. So the 1875 bucks there uh, is only for the tuition fees, but a global uh, student bill is way higher than that. Next, please. <laughs> Getting there. We made uh, actually a research about the life condition of a students in the university, and we found out that a student is not rich. Actually, they earn 30,000 uh, dollars a year, and that included also debt. So, and we found out also that a student in Quebec, in the province of Quebec, goes degree in hand with a lot of debt. Actually, it's fourteen thousand dollars. So, it put a lot of pressure in the next generation to come to contribute to the economy of the, the province. And this is only for actually the undergrad, because if you are a graduate student, while well, your debt is a little bit more higher, of course, and you are also working a lot more hours outside school. And so we were actually very surprised to find out that a student that is doing a bachelor degree have to work 19 hours outside schoolwork to pay for the tuition fee. And this actually has a big impact of the motivation and also the... Um, the way that the students are doing their degree, and so, and they're also their um, their note at this uh, at the end of their uh, bachelor. So, we are uh, actually we were actually very concerned about those numbers, and we tried several times to uh, sit with the government, doing lobby with them, making sure that they understand that the students doesn't have sixteen twenty five to put in their university. It's actually a lot of percentage of their revenue, their annual revenue. So we were uh, actually advocating uh, for the government to change their way. But again, they did it. So it's been two years uh, now since we are trying to speak with the government about this. 
And, of course, the financial aid program. So the government is saying, well, if you don't have enough money, there's still the financial aid program that can help you going to the university and paying for your studies. But the financial aid program is saying that the Internet is still a luxury good in 2012. Of course, you don't need the Internet if you're university students. We all know that. So you have to pay for your internet. And the financial aid program is planning that for students in university, $7 per day to eat is enough. Okay. So even if you like craft dinner, you know that you need your milk and you know that you, well, you don't have enough money to afford craft dinner for a day. So that's very funny. So there's a lot of problems with the financial aid program. It didn't follow the, in the inflation in the last years. So, of course, if you're a student coming from a region and you don't have transportation to go to university and you have to use your car, well, they, it's only covered the expenses of half of what you're needed for uh, your, um, all the year long. So this is a problem. And the contribution, the parental contribution, started at $30,000. So two parents earning minimum wage are earning $38,000. So people that are not earning from minimum wage are supposed to pay for their, their, actually their students. So this is a problem because they have to pay for their children, but they don't have enough money uh, for, to actually um, pay for all their expenses. So... This is a major problem of this financial aid program. But of course, the government is still saying that we have one of the biggest and most of the uh, uh, rate financial aid program across the country. We all know that. So also the government is saying, well, our tuition fee has been freeze for the last 40 years. And this is not true. You can see this in my chart. And actually, why is the tuition fee going up in the last 40 years? Because they doesn't take into account in their calculation the mandatory fees that goes up following the inflation. So they're only talking about tuition fee, but not talking about all the other fees that a student has to pay to make sure that they can actually go to the next session because you have to pay for all your fees to get your inscription. So, of course, the government is not saying that from the last 20 years, when we had those tuition fee freeze, we were paying more and more to go to university. So when they are saying that uh, we are actually, uh, ne we need to reinvest in our university, where we are asking them where this, this money went, because university, we're getting more and more money each year. So they are, they are saying to the students in Quebec, well, you have to work more outside school. And now we're going to go to uh, uh, Yannick and Martine talking about the current mobilization and uh, the future prospects. So back to this year campaign, uh, it of course began with the uh, back to class in fall 2011. Uh, it was the real beginning of the mobilization. Uh, since in the past year, uh, speaking with the government, giving them the, our arguments why they shouldn't increase tuition fees, they were responding by uh, ideological uh, speeches. Uh, we had to go and mobilize people and organize them. So. Uh, 
At the beginning, the idea of a strike wasn't a natural one. It wasn't something that everybody will say, yeah, let's go to strike. Uh, we, had, we had to make all in, in our power to make sure that every tool we had before going to strike were going to be put to use before telling the students we don't have any other choice now. So that's what we did mostly in the autumn uh, this year. So uh, we made different rallies in different regions. Every region in Quebec had a, a demonstration during uh, the autumn session. Uh, and the, uh, the, the mobilization there was pretty good also, uh, like in uh, Abitibi-Témiscamingue, which is a small region. They had the biggest demonstration there uh, during this time. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an eight-hour ride from Montreal, so it's in up the north. north. Yeah, and people, it's a small town, and there were over 200 people. And actually, they are used to a demonstration that included in maximum 50 people. So <laughs> it's been a lot of uh, students that came out in the street that day. And actually, it was the first day of strike of this old mobilization, which is the 12th of October. So it was very early. So all these rallies led to the November 10th uh, demonstration. What we plan is to have a, a bigger uh, demonstration than in 2005, which was the previous campaign, which was about 10,000 people. We plan to have like 15,000. And big surprise on that day, uh, there was 30,000 30, students uh, from all Quebec that joined in Montreal in the protest. And there was 205,000 uh, uh, students overall on strike for that day. There was, the, the, there was the, the beginning of the strike. They won this strike for that demonstration. What the government said after that, it said, there was a demo. I didn't hear anything. But of course, this was a big one. This was the second largest uh, demonstration of the story, uh, history of the, movement, uh, the student movement. And they were advocating that there was nothing happening there. Uh, so of course, we're going to break the story a few times later yeah. also. Uh, the red squares, which we all wear, uh, almost here. Um, <laughs> became the symbol. It was uh, something that was used in 2005. It came back and citizens and students started wearing it. And there was the beginning of the question about the management of universities uh, and the presentation that we made in front of the uh, Superior Education Council, which was thinking about how the, uh, our universities are managed. Oh, because the government was planning, of course, another solution to solve this crisis and so beginning to solve this crisis in December. And so this is actually the uh, November 10th demonstration. So we were, it was raining, as you can see, and uh, all the association leaders were up front, so it was a great time. In winter, this is where it all began and why we are still on strike right now. So in winter, in the beginning of the strike, Uh, every students have to go on in a general assembly, making sure that they were ready to go on strike. And so uh, in the mid-February, at the February 13, exactly, um, student association were going on strike. So it was very early in the uh, session, trust me. We were planning actually to go and to start the, the strike in the last week of February. So actually, students decided otherwise, and it's all right, because they have their choice, and they, they did actually their own choices. But we were planning to have a big demonstration on the 22nd of March, so we were actually 
very worried about the, the fact that the people won't stay on strike that long and won't be able to attend the 22nd demonstration, 22nd of March demonstration. So we, uh, we work very hard because in every week people were going to vote again to reconduct the strike they voted for the last week. So it was a lot of work and we need and we needed at that time a lot of voluntary to participate in those uh, general assembly because we are eight people in our executive so it's not enough to cover all the provinces of course. And so uh, we had one of the biggest demonstrations of the history of Quebec on the 22nd of March. And actually, it was a peaceful and festive demonstration. No arrestation was made. So the government didn't have actually this, this tool to say that the, gov the, the student movement was actually violent and was not credible. And so the government said, well, 200,000 people in the street, that's great, but the student, will, the student movement will collapse. So we are waiting. And they were waiting after Easter for the, for the student movement to collapse. And so they waiting, uh, they waiting and waiting until they come call us at the table of negotiation in the last week of April, because they thought the movement will gonna end soon. But actually, it's been 18 weeks now, and we're still on strike. Actually, we are in lockout. Because the government, from the beginning, said, well, the student movement doesn't have the right to go on strike. And we are boycotting, actually, our classes. And right now, they passes a bill, which is the Bill 78, saying, well, the students, uh, the courses are suspended until the next session. And so we're now in lockout. So this is very strange, because at first we weren't supposed to be on strike. So we're now in lockout. So there have been a lot of, uh, of course, demonstration every night uh, since the 22nd of March. And actually, we've been working in winter for the pre-electoral writings, making sure that the, the deputy that passes with a few voted at the last election won't be reelected. And actually, we... Um, we had some phone calls from those deputies and some attaché of those deputies saying, well, we have to stop doing this because it was affecting, actually, their uh, vote in those writings. And, well, we'll get there. So the picture you have there is the March 22nd uh, demonstration. And if you look at the up of the picture, you'll see that the demonstration is coming from the left and you don't see where it ends. Uh, for my part, as a, an anecdote, I was on the front of the demonstration, and when I get to the Irivald point, there were still people coming from the beginning of the demonstration. In fact, it was a large group of people on streets, and it never got really a, an end to this demonstration. There was, we say, 200,000 people, probably much more. Yeah. So in spring, after the, um, the big demo of uh, March 22nd, uh, there, there has been two other demonstrations of 200,000 citizens on uh, April 22nd and, of course, on May 22nd also. And there was another one planned for June 22nd, which is Friday. Friday. Uh, we'll see how many people will show up. <laughs> <laughs> um, between the, the big demo and now, there has been four rounds of negotiation that all ended with no result for the student. 
In fact, what we found out is that most of the time the government was calling students to a table only to use them as a public relation tool to make sure to attack their credibility. Uh, so the first time they, uh, they uh, ejected one of the student association, so by solidarity, all the other also quit uh, the table. Uh, the second time, uh, there has been a, a solution that was uh, put on the table, and before even the student had a chance to vote on that, the governor was saying it's, well, it's not going to happen. So they, uh, they kind of canceled their own solution. Uh, to, yeah. They sabotage actually their yeah. own solution going on in public. Actually, I was doing interviews <coughs> the day after we had an agreement, and the government, uh, the Minister of Education, was saying at the radio, well, the, the student didn't say uh, they're not saying the right thing. Actually, it's not this. It's gonna ha gonna happen. The finance model of the university is still going in the pocket of the students. And I was like waiting for my interview and saying, what is happening exactly? That's not the deal. That wasn't the deal. So the third time, uh, we went there for about uh, half an hour. And after that, we got Bill 78. <laughs> We're going to speak about it. So they, they made us come to, after that, uh, go in the, in the media and say students are very violent and they are pretty uh, strong on their position, so there's nothing we can do. We have to pass that bill. Um, and after that, the fourth time, uh, they, made a, they uh, put forward some parameters to finance university, uh, and we played with that, and we showed them that it was possible to maintain a tuition fee freeze for at least two years, only with their parameters, and when they found out that this was possible, they left the table. So, they, so the government, facing the, their own, uh, their own failing solution, <laughs> chose to leave the, the table. And it has practically never happened in a story that a government would leave a table of negotiation. But that happened. Yeah. <laughs> and that was Martine Desjardins and Yannick Gregoire. And they were from the, the University Student Federation of Quebec, and um, that full um, panel discussion, Quebec Student Strikes, Lessons from the Frontline, um, hosted by the BC Feder Federation of Labor um, and uh, the Canadian Federation of Students was also there to talk and ask questions um, and engage the audience. So that whole uh, panel discussion can be found at thecityfm.org. And um, I'm going to give you a bit of a, a promo preview of um, an upcoming um, show, actually, for next week. Um, we're going to be looking at the role of artists, um, art, boutiques, and uh, processes of gentrification, uh, focusing in on Vancouver's downtown east side, which has seen um, a real increase in the number of gallery and boutiques um, lately, and how this is um, part of a larger process of class transformation um, in in the city um, so here's um, here's a bit of uh, what you can expect for next week's edition of the city you know one of the interesting things about this whole process that draws more and more people to the um, the so-called authentic neighborhoods is the entrepreneurial businesses that are opened up by creative people to cater to their own community. And usually these are small businesses that provide services or provide goods that um, the new residents culturally crave. They have no intention of driving out old businesses, uh, but they are really visible presences on the street. And they signal that these areas of the city are now safe 
for bigger real estate development. You know, we used to think that it was the presence of artists that led to gentrification, but I really think that it's the presence of the businesses that artists create, art galleries, performance spaces, bars, restaurants, uh, that really, boutiques, that really attract people from a larger public, first as visitors and then as would-be residents. My name is Tara Hogue, and um, I'm a curator at the GAM Gallery. There's also the sequel 138 development that's going into the Pantages, the old Pantages space, which is right down the street from us. And that's an interesting one because they really market towards, they really market to artists, and they've, they've had artists on the campaign to uh, promote that project, actually. Where does the GAM stand on that very development? Uh, I have I have really mixed feelings about it. Um, I've I'm on their mailing list, so they send me their promotional materials. <laughs> but I I I don't know. It's it's so slanted towards towards press talk, and I'm I'm really I'm really wary of it. I I know that they have mandated some some low income housing in that and that they have raised money all by themselves they're not you know um relying on any any grant money um I it's such a complicated and tough issue and I know that on one level the gam is part of it because we are you know we are the bastions of gentrification as they say on the one hand, but then on the other hand, that seems like a, an easy sort of scapegoat. <laughs> Can you talk more about that? Um, yeah, well, I think that there's been... When we first opened, there was an article published in the Thai about phantom galleries in this part of the city, which are where we were characterized as a pop-up space that's hard to see. Um, and that, you know, that the window dressings that we afford on, on the street sort of lead the way for development. And I know that, um, you know, it's, it's undeniable that, that art and artistic production today is very much linked to high capitalism. Um, but at the same time, um, we should be careful to differentiate between different types of artistic practices. Uh, and I would, you know, strongly argue that the, that the GAM is not part of, of that system of capital in any way. We don't make any money. Um, and, and I think that we're trying to foster s something else here. All that and more on the next edition of The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. And we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. In Canada, June is recognized as National Aboriginal History Month and culminates on June 21st, which is National Aboriginal Day. CITR is a proud supporter of National Aboriginal History Month and is pleased to bring you special programming as well as highlights of events taking place throughout the month of June. On Friday, June 19th, there will be a special screening of the film What I Learned in Class Today from 1 to 3 in the Fraser River Room in the Irving K. Barber Learning Centre. 
June 21st is National Aboriginal Day. Join us at the Musqueam Community Rec Center from 11 a.m. to noon, then from noon to 5 at Trout Lake for a full day of celebration and music. June 22nd, the Waywa Library at 1985 West Mall Street will be having a special open house and cook-off starting at 11 a.m. And on June 25th, listen to CITR from 3 to 5 for music and interviews celebrating National Aboriginal History Month. And don't forget to visit the special Aboriginal community displays on show at the Irving K. Barber Learning Centre all through the month of June. All this and more brought to you by CITR and the National Aboriginal Unhistory Month. For more information, visit bcnationalaboriginalday.com. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And that concludes this edition of The City on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. And uh, if you want to find more about the show, check out our archive. Uh, thecityfm.org is the place to get to. Um, also on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore FM. And we're also on Facebook. Um, you can search The City. And uh, if you're tuning in on CITR, um, we've got Flex Your Head coming up next at 6. If you're listening on CJSF, uh, you'll have Democracy Now! coming up next. So thanks so much for tuning in and uh, look forward to more critical urban discussions. in the sun.